following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. All right, the reading from the Gospel of Matthew. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. But I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Thank you, Leslie. Okay, so today we are doing something a little different. Um, once in a while, I like to play Stump the Pastor. Uh, spoiler alert, it's easier than you might think. <laughs> or maybe you would think it's easy and you'd be right. Um, but this is just our funny way of saying, ask me anything, uh, what's on your mind, it could be about that really difficult teaching of Jesus that Leslie just read. Uh, it could be about the, the announcement that I made earlier that we we're talking about. It could be about something in your own life, about prayer or scripture reading. Um, basically, it could be anything that you would like to ask me about in the limited time that we have together. I love to hear what's on your mind. I can't promise that I'll give you perfect answers, but I, I do promise that I'll give you a response. So I, I sometimes, if I call it Q&A, I usually call it Q&R, actually, because um, I am not the answer man, but um, I do like to have some dialogue with you. So I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to, to use the uh, microphone so that others can hear your question and I don't have to repeat it. That'll save us some time and get us maybe an extra question in at the end. So who has the first, uh, who's going to stump me first? <laughs> Oh, I see a hand over there. I saw lots of pointing first, and then a hand over there. Um, thanks, Seth. Um, that passage was pretty difficult to hear. You know, I think God's character is it's hard to follow sometimes through the difficult 
narratives that this is Jesus teaching about love. Mm -hmm. And when they talk about how the things that we love most in the world is kind of being um, contrary to, to God's character of love, that God is love. How does this, these words from Jesus about saying that's a lot of the things that we love? Yeah. That's a great question. So I think part of what Dave is alluding to may be that that um, we often talk about how when you get to those difficult passages in, in Scripture, you know, say the ones in the Hebrew Bible where the, the people of God really believe that God wanted them to slaughter all of the Canaanites and that that was God's will. Um, that doesn't feel good to us. And and so my suggestion when we come to those passages is look at this in the light of Jesus's life and teaching and and ministry and death and, and especially in his modeling nonviolence. Um, and then when you have that lens on, you can, it doesn't make it necessarily easy to do, but you can look at some of those more difficult passages and say, okay, I'm reading this through, to use a fancy word, a Christological lens. I'm reading it through Jesus. Then what you say is, well, this is Jesus talking. It doesn't really get much more Christological than that. What do you do with this? And does Jesus really want us to, um, not love our children or our parents? Uh, does Jesus really intend to drive families apart, right? Um, and I'll just I'll be very honest with you. This is a very difficult gospel passage. It's the one that the lectionary assigned today. And since I didn't have a sermon to preach, I just decided to use the lectionary passages. And I don't like to dodge the difficult stuff. So I probably I figured a question would probably come up. Um, does that mean I prepared an answer? No, it does not. Um, I guess I would say one thing that we can do in, with stuff like this is broaden it out and look at the entire thing that Jesus did, right? So if you look at the entirety of what Jesus' ministry was, all of the teachings that he gave, the way he moved about in the world, the way his own mother cared for him and he cared for her, even in the point of his death on the cross, you see that intimacy there. I don't think it's really possible to say that Jesus actually wants to create division in families and, and doesn't want us to hate our family members. Um, we're getting maybe closer to what he might actually have meant by saying what, what I don't think he necessarily meant. And we're not maybe going to get all the way to that, but um, I also, as I was hearing it this time, when Leslie was reading it a minute ago, I was, I was thinking about how many people, even in this room, as they have pursued uh a faith in Christ that is being harmonized with their sexual orientation or gender, um, how that has caused immeasurable pain within families. And I wonder if maybe Jesus is alluding to the fact that when you really seek after truth, his truth um, and your own truth, that, um, Sometimes that does cause division in families. It's not just about gender and sexuality, of course. There's all kinds of versions of about that. But that's one that I know feels very close to some of the people in this room. And I, maybe it's maybe it's Jesus' way of saying whatever the thing might be, because I don't, you know, I don't. He was speaking to people in the ancient Near East, not in 21st century Rochester, New York, obviously. But whatever the thing might be, if you if you really are going to pursue this, it's it's going to cause division. And so when, when he says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword, I don't think that he's saying, you know, take up the sword and, and slice up your family. I, I think he's sort of saying like this way of Jesus, this way of the cross is 
is not going to be easy. And here's some of the ways it won't be easy. I hope that you feel a little bit less dissatisfied with that answer than I do. <laughs> um, but it's, let's just acknowledge it's a hard one. It's a very hard one. And it's too early in this, in this brief time that we have together for me to say, maybe we could do a sermon series on that someday. <laughs> That's always my go-to. Thank you for that question. What's next? No, there's uh, a hand up here. Oh, there's one in the back too. So after Alicia, you can bring it up to Don, please. I've been spending a little time in Exodus 11 and 12, that talks about the first Passover. And I'm perplexed, and maybe this is in line with what you were saying. I'm perplexed with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Mm. Well, I think of brokenness coming from us. We are the authors of brokenness. I don't think of God making me broken. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was going to be easy questions today. <laughs> Could somebody have loved me a softball for the first one or two? No, um, that is really, you've, I mean, another one of the most difficult verses in the Bible for me. So uh, you might be um, left wanting after this answer. So Alicia's referring to the, 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 the Egyptians enslavement of the Israelites and Moses comes and tries to lead the people out of slavery and Pharaoh um, <clears throat> won't let them go. And there's this series of plagues, right? And just when it seems like he's ready to let them go, he changes his mind and doesn't let them go. And at one point it does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, which is not in keeping with my understanding of God's character, uh, that God would make somebody do something awful to God's people um, that would then result in more judgment upon that person taking place, right? My best answer to that right now is going to split the room. Some people are going to hate it. Some people might be okay with it. But much as when we read in, say, the book of Joshua, that the people, that God told the people to slaughter all those Canaanites and to leave no one alone, I think what happened is, God didn't say that. They wrote down that God said that because that was their perception of the world at the time. And they that's what everybody did. They slaughtered the people that go into the thing they want to live, the place they wanted to live in. And then when someone else came along, they, they got slaughtered. And that's how the world worked. And that's how people understood divine will. I don't think they were correct about it, despite the fact that it was recorded in sacred scripture. Anybody want to fire me just yet? Um <clears throat> I wonder if this is the similar thing happening here that also there's, there's with things like this, there's so much nuance and subtlety in the language that whatever we have in English, I, if for difficult stuff like that, I would want to go much deeper into the, into the Hebrew uh, text. And I just don't have that at my disposal right at the moment, but I'm my short answer after my long answer is I think that's probably not exactly what happened. Decide to teach a Hebrew class. Yeah. Um, I, I took two semesters of Greek 20 years ago, and I forgot them both, and I didn't take any semesters of Hebrew. But um, could you bring the microphone up to Don? She has a nice, easy question for me. Wants to ask me about my favorite guitar. Or... It's that one right there. 
That's okay. I'm teasing. I like the, I, I love the difficult questions. Um, the space for us to ask difficult questions. Um, so um, I don't have it in a question, but I guess what's been on my mind a lot lately is um, oh, hmm. um, how does one, especially one who is a Christian, have hope in a world that's still being suffering and trauma and illness all the things that very weight Mm-hmm. in our lives. Um, a lot of it, I, I also think about um, suicide and mental health and illness. So I think my question is, how does one counsel or inspire hope as a person to people in our lives? Yeah. That's a great question, Don. Thank you for asking it. And I've, I have I think a, a common answer to that question in the in the early days of my faith would have been our hope is in the afterlife, right? Whatever bad things happen here, everything will be fine when we get to heaven and see Jesus, right? And whatever version of the afterlife exists, and I, I don't think it's really very intellectually honest to say that we can describe it with much detail based on the scriptures, I do think there's something, and I do think that um, in the in the end of all things, that God wipes away every tear. That's one of the things that we see in the book of Revelation. In the middle of all that weirdness about dragons and lakes of fire, God will wipe away every tear from every eye. So that I do believe in some future eternal hope. I do believe that the story of God concludes in some way with um, everything being remade and recreated and and made right. I suppose I find a little bit less solace in that as I've gotten older and seen the realities of life. It's a little bit hard to wait for that. And as I've become a little bit less certain in aspects of my faith, it's a little bit harder to pin everything on that. And so what I have found is that if you look for it, that work is already being done in our world by God now. And this is, I think, a huge part of our calling as, as followers of God is to be part of remaking everything, to be the, the thumb that dries away the tears in the eyes of the people who are alive and with us right now in the present day. And if we all join together in that work, um, I think that the world gets better, but it gets better incrementally. Right. And as certain things happen uh, in the world, uh, it's not like a straight line up. Right. Things get worse and then they get a little better and then worse and a little bit better. Um, So I do think there's hope to be found in uh, in the people around us. Sometimes the people around us are the ones who cause us to despair. And the loss of those people is part of what causes us the pain. So I don't want to. I don't want to be too glib about that, but I think that's part of it. I would also say that the the transcendent experiences that are available to us in life are part of how God heals us. And I would include things like the arts in that, right? Um, I really do believe that this is 
the the experience that you have when you go and see uh, an amazing painting or when you go to hear a concert or um, when you attend the ballet or when your three-year-old draws something with their crayons but that is that is holy it's not it's not just extraneous or uh it's not just um an indulgence i believe that those things those moments are holy i saw this amazing um meme thing recently that sort of ties into this i'll try to tell you about it really quick so it was somebody reposting something that someone else had posted which is all of the internet right now right but what the person the original poster had said like i grew up going to my mega church thinking that i experienced god every sunday and then I went to a One Direction concert and I felt the same thing. <laughs> and, I, and I realized maybe I just like music. <laughs> right? And the person reposted it and said, I totally get what they're saying. But what if the correct interpretation is not that there's no God and not, you only like music, but that God actually was at the One Direction concert just as much as God was at the, the mega church. Right? I love that it's One Direction, by the way. <laughs> For me, it would be different um, <laughs> sources, but um, leaning into and soaking in those moments of joy and truth and beauty that we can find even in this hellscape that sometimes seems like is around us is part of what I think God is doing in the world. Good? Very good. <laughs> okay. um, there's right behind you, and then we'll go back uh, even farther. Sorry, <laughs> How do you personally discern the difference between the still small voice of the Holy Spirit and your own still small voice? Oh, what a great question. Are they always different? (laughs) Am I supposed to be answering the questions and not asking them? That is part of my answer, is that, like, we are bearers of the Holy Spirit. Like, this is this is the, the sacredness of life, is that we are infused with God's image. Um, and that when we, uh, when we dedicate our lives to following Jesus, the, the Spirit is with us. And so what I would like to help maybe... Uh, for some people in the room come to is an acknowledgement and acceptment and acceptance of your own voice. Your own still small voice is not something that should automatically be doubted or mistrusted. I know that some of you have been taught that, that the heart above all things is deceitful, right? And so almost by definition, anything that you want can't be what God wants for you. Right. Uh, and then you add in a theology of utter misery, like that salvation is only achieved by punishment and death and things like, you know, you have to take up your cross being like really hammered down in, into you. You get this picture of the Christian faith, which is that if anything feels right or good, it can't be good. So you should mistrust that and lean further into the stuff that's really off feeling, right? Or more difficult. Um, I think we, I did a, a whole sermon a month or two ago that touched on that. The heart of the heart above all things is deceitful. So if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go find it on the podcast. And if you can't find it, email me and I'll, I'll send you the, the link. Cause that I, I got a lot of response 
from people on that one. Now, let me give you something specific, which I received from my Ignatian spiritual director, which is that the fruit of the spirit are quite reliable (laughs) indicators of God's presence in something, right? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. If if, if you had a, a meter for all of those things and you see them going up in a situation, that's like, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what those things are. If they're going down, that's, you know, some, I think true Ignatian spirituality would say that's the dark spirit, right? If you don't want to embody the, you know, the presence of evil into spiritual beings, that's fine. You could just say that's not the fruit of the spirit. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a big part of how the early church discerned what God's work was in their midst. It included the inclusion of lots and lots of people who were um, by tradition and reading of scripture, not supposed to be included. And yet the Holy spirit was producing this fruit in their lives. And they were, they were brought up short and said, well, I guess that's the, you know, to use your phrase, that's the still small voice of God um, coming through. And so in moments of trying to discern, my specific counsel to you, which I take directly from Sister Sheila Bryde, is um, open yourself to God's guidance. Consider these two options. Embody one of them, even for a whole day. Imagine you've already decided on column A. And notice, are you seeing more or less of the fruits of the Spirit? And then the next day, embody decision B. And notice, are you seeing more or less of the fruits of the Spirit? And I tried this once, and I was like, They were both the same. (laughs) What now? And she's like, you're probably good either way. (laughs) So does that get at your question? Thank you. Um, You can just pass the microphone back if you want. Maybe some folks would be willing to hand that back to Deanna. Sin. What's up with that? And actually, your answer ties into part of my question is, I came from a tradition where the people I trusted to um, interpret the Bible, I mean, what the Bible says sin is and how to find sin. And even though there was a message that we don't rank sins, there was a contradictory nuanced message that sins are linked. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I deconstructed a lot of my, what I was taught, what I spent most of my life to avoid sin, and now I myself spending more really focusing on the love of God and loving others. Yeah. But what role does sin play in our lives, and how do we know what it is? Yeah, great question. Uh, thank you. So my friend Don gives a great teaching on sin, which I'll borrow from here. Uh, for a moment the the gist of it is that we could we would do well to discern or to to distinguish between sin and wickedness right and i'm I'm from uh New England, so wicked is has had its own meaning up there, but you know what I mean right now right um sin uh in in the biblical languages um means kind of like missing the mark 
right? So if you think of an archer trying to draw a bow and shoot an arrow into a bullseye, if if she shoots at the bullseye and you know gets out into the 10 or the five score or misses the target altogether, right? Um, that's that's okay. You just need to try again and work on your aim and and try to hit that mark better the next time you draw back the string of the ball. Um, it, you know, you think of bowling, right? You roll the ball down the thing and if you don't have the bumpers up, it might be a gutter ball, right? You might get a strike. Um, but the point is you're you're aiming at something and sin, hamartia, I believe is the is the biblical word, uh, is a missing of that mark. And it's not always an indication of wickedness. So wickedness would be pointing the bow at someone and trying to take their life or uh, taking the bowling ball and, you know, whacking somebody with it or um, trying to destroy the, the, the counter with it, or, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm, my analogy is going all over the place here, but in high control religious environments where sin is used as a lever, the word sin is used as a lever to control people's behavior um, you, that's not the nuance you're going to get. You're going to get like, yeah, um, any sin that you ever do is enough to send you to hell for eternity. And there's, there's only one way out of that. Um, the analogy I always use or the example I always use is like being in the grocery store. When I was at the grocery store with my mom, I'm like five years old and taking a grape off of the produce aisle and eating the grape and not paying for it. That's stealing. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Straight down. Unless you get it sorted out, Right. I find that approach to our religion, our Christian faith, our spirituality to be extremely unhelpful. Um, and I think that there is a better way to, to think about it. Um, I have more to say about that, but I think I'm probably going to stop on that point. I, I know I didn't fully answer your question, but I maybe maybe kind of, pushed your boat out in the right direction of the pond. Yeah. So I don't know if this is a question or understanding for this question, but what Dave said about the passive being hard and personally knowing that's been used in high control religion to kind of control behavior. Um, marrying someone who wasn't a believer, one of the things that came to was that God can't be jealous of our human relationships. Mm. And um, if he's God, then he'd be really petty God to care how much I loved another person. Mm. And I've kind of taken the route of interpreting passages like that in the light of the message of love. And I think some people of faith do the opposite, mm. where they interpret speaking on love with those other ones as happiness. Yeah. And um, Mark Twain said it's not the parts of the Bible that he doesn't understand the human trouble, it's the part that do that he does understand. And I'm kind of going back to the whole I'm just doing my best. Yeah. And I want to like lean in on love. And if there was a question, I think it would be looking for approval, is that good enough? Am I teetering on the edge of heresy or is this good enough? Oh, gotcha. 
Um, I misheard you at first, but I think I know what you mean. Yes. Well, I, yeah, and this is this is a, a fuller answer to Anna's, to Deanna's question as well. But yes, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in scripture? And he says, love God with everything you have. That's the first and greatest commandment. And there's another one like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets, which, which means the entire Bible. If you get these two things right, you are on the right track is like a similar, a simpler way of saying it. Maybe yes, the law of love is not a, it's not a joke. It's not like a, an excuse. It's not intended to dumb down anything else. Now it's, it's also not as simple as we sometimes make it out to be because what does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it mean to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Right. Even, I mean, we could go into hours on both of those things, but in part, you can, you people twist it as soon as you say it. And they say, well, if you do X, Y, or Z, you're not loving God with all of your heart or your mind or your strength. Right. Well, at this point, all we can do is agree to disagree. I, I really mean that. Like, because there are people who are going to say, no matter what you, how you explain yourself, they're going to twist it to say, like, no, that's not what that means, right? Last week, I talked about chameleon passages, which, which are words and phrases that can mean anything the speaker or preacher or reader wants them to mean. I don't think that they necessarily do, but they're very easy to sort of twist into whatever you want it to be. And this is that even this one, unfortunately, can be used that way. And then the other thing is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, a lot of us have a really difficult time loving ourselves, and that's not a great model for how to love other people, right? <laughs> um, we're so, so hard on ourselves. And yeah, anyway, others of us are total narcissists, and <laughs> that's, that's not good either. So yeah, could we pass the mic up to Penny and then... Uh, is that Bonnie's hand back there? And that we might, that might be all we can do, but we'll see, see how long these answers take. Okay. Um, first time caller, long time sister. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yeah, it's a band who wants anyone to have a And I apologize in advance for this. Then we're going to go back to the passage. Uh, because I am of a group that gets that particular passage as used as justification for actual physical attacks. Uh, I told a story I was in Cincinnati last a couple of weeks ago. I did an additional story about last year when I was driving through Ohio. And at a restaurant, and I had to make a group of people who all had um, crosses and a quote-unquote on their matching t-shirts afraid of me so that I could get away from them so I could get into my car and get away from whatever they were going to do for me. Mm-hmm. To me. I didn't know um, what was going to happen. And... Um, I'm sure you've heard this before, the, 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 the phrase, there's nothing so hateful as Christian love, mm. that uh, they are trying to use their Christianity as a as a club in both senses of the word. Yep. And so I have to deal with that. And also, at the same time, 
deal with people in my own community who will say things to me like, how can you be part of an organization that wants to kill you? We kill all of us. Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. And I, I started to know that Jesus is the, what, I don't even know as a Christian anymore. I'm also a follower of Jesus because that word is so poison. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I feel like I'm called to go out into the world and help um, people to break people's hearts, not the hard neighbors. One of the things that I do is I break hearts so that they can see that. These people that they are being that are being targeted are just people. Yeah. Who loves and lives and successful and failures just like they do, but I am better than the monsters. So I mean, I don't know if there's a question in there or two questions or mm. but thank you for doing this. I think you like this more than we pretend. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, thank you, Penny. Um, you can pass the mic, the mic back that way. Um, now I've got the Beastie Boys stuck in my head. Um, but uh, thanks for sharing that. And I'm so sorry that that is the experience that you had. That the um, you know, there's no amount of words that will make that okay. But thank you for doing what you do. And I, you're not the only one in the room. Um, who breaks hearts. And the thing about breaking hearts is that it's very slow work and it has a, maybe even a a very low success rate, if you will. Um, But that's not how we measure love. Um, So keep the faith, keep doing what you're doing. I don't care what you call yourself. I can't imagine that God cares what you call yourself. Um, And I totally get why you'd want to, remove some of those labels it's not about the 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 name um as far as i'm concerned nobody needs to care what i think uh thank you yes yeah um Awkward speaking tonight. Um, <laughs> but I also wanted to just say thank you for doing this i've never actually been to a church where did anything like this before um, so something that has been on my mind recently as I've kind of been trying to refine my faith is that I'm in an interfaith relationship and growing up I feel like I just heard like going to my heart if you're not quote unquote equally good. Uh-huh. I'm not really even understood what that meant. So I'm just curious um, as I've been kind of thinking about will this have an impact on my relationship in the future, and what will that maybe look like? Is is there actually a scripture about interfaith relationships or any actual guidance coming from the Bible or God or even your experience as working with people? But yeah, yeah anything more concrete than a phrase that you don't understand? Yeah. Yeah, unequally yoked is, I, I think it's an agricultural reference, right? The, the yoke is the thing that goes across the back of the oxen. And, you know, if they're, the idea, the image there is if like one of them is way smaller or bigger than the other one, it's not going to be, they're not going to pull the cart forward as efficiently, right? And so this is actually a part of the answer to your question. Um, I, I do think that in certain aspects of life, uh, if you're partnered with someone who has 
very different values from you, it's going to be more challenging to pull some carts forward. Do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Um, and so it might be that one would recommend against that. Um, I have known some people who had interface relationships that fell apart and they're no longer together. But I've also known a lot of people who were quote unquote equally yoked whose relationships fell apart and they're no longer together. So I, I don't think it's really fair to just say that that always is a recipe for disaster. Um, you also have to keep in mind that there are some, some words about marriage in the Christian scriptures, right? And certainly a lot of examples of marriage in the whole Bible. Most of those examples are really bad, by the way, <laughs> really bad. Um, and all of them, all of them assume a cultural commitment to patriarchy. And I'm just talking, not just talking about like, you know, the wife has to do the dishes. I'm talking about the wife is the property of the husband. And it's only in the, in the, as the Christian church begins to come into its understanding of what God wants to do, that they start to say things like in, in the spirit, in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female but we're all one. Um, and not just like wives obey your husbands, which was the assumption of the day and was literally posted on the walls of the Roman empire, that this is the household code, but husbands love your wives and surrender your life to them. Like lay down your life the way Christ loves the church. So trying to balance things out eventually happens. He says all kinds of things about, you know, like maybe the husband could be saved through the believing wife or something like that. And, and someone's going to put that weight on you someday if that's the way things go for you in this relationship. Um, I, I, my, my answer is that I, I, it's going to make some things harder, but I don't think it has to be impossible. And I'm not really as a pastor inclined to tell people not to like never, ever do that. I've, there's examples right here in the room of people who are in those relationships and they're thriving. Also, there's examples of people in the room who were equally yoked at the start of their relationship. And then somebody had a change of heart or mind and now they're no longer equally yoked. And guess what you do in those situations? The best you can. Right. Um, and you can model. It's like, um, I could go on and on. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, I, I really want to answer this question from Zoom as best I can. And that probably needs to be our last one. So as with most of the other answers I gave, I, I'm like, I really want to keep going, but I'm going to stop there for now. Okay. This is a very good and difficult question. Uh, we're taught to, quote, forgive those who transgressed against us, end quote. That was in the Lord's Prayer today, or a version of it. How do we move forward after instances of abuse? Yeah. <clears throat> um, really tough question and really important question. And I have no easy answer for that question. And I think anybody who tells you there's an easy answer for that question might not be worthy of the entirety of your trust. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is if, if you were to try to learn to play piano, you would not start with Rachmaninoff 
right? You'd start with chopsticks or you'd start with heart and soul. Um, I can kind of do that do 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 song. Like that's as far as I ever got on piano. But people who spend a lot of time with piano can play Rachmaninoff. I think it's similar when we try to forgive people who've done wrong to us. Trying to start with the people who actually abused you is going to be like playing Rachmaninoff the first time you sit down at a piano. And it's going to result in what seems like failure because you're not doing it right or doing it well enough and you can't bring yourself to do it at all. When I think if you started instead with the person who cut you off in traffic, or the person who stole 20 bucks from your wallet to go get high, or, you know, the person who yelled at you and and was not patient with you or something like that. That's kind of like the chopsticks or heart and soul version of playing piano. Um, when it comes to forgiving those who've hurt you. Now, I'm not promising that in this lifetime, you're going to get all the way to being able to forgive someone who was your abuser. Um, I think it's an admirable target. But you only get to that point by, by gradually learning how to do it. This is true of all kinds of things in the in the faith, by the way. We because of the way we're taught salvation, that like all you've got to do is is um with every head bowed and every eye closed, like raise your hand this much when the pastor prays the prayer, and then you're saved from all of your sins forever. When when it's defined as that simple, the trickle-down effects of that theology and teaching is that everything in the faith is that simple. And if you struggle with any of it, it must not be real for you, or you must not be a good enough Christian. And I just I aggressively reject that perspective. So um, I hope that's somewhat helpful. Uh, if you're not already seeing a counselor, strongly recommend seeing a counselor. Unfortunately, you have to be a little careful when you go to religious counselors because they might have some weird expectations about this kind of thing. I would be happy to talk to people in my pastoral role. Most of you know that I'm almost through a graduate program in mental health counseling and I'm, I'm not licensed, so I can't do mental health counseling, but I can do pastoral counseling that takes into account that stuff. If, if whoever, this person in the Zoom is anonymous, um, if you want to talk to me, I'd be willing to talk with you and, and probably could make a referral for you. That goes for everybody else who's listening right now because you're, you're, the person on Zoom is not the only one who had this experience of life. Not by a long shot. God loves you. God did not want that to happen to you. It might be that the person who did it to you was doing it in, in the name of God. And that is horrifying, but true. It might be the work of your life to, to unwind all of that and to, to heal from it. But we are here with you and for you. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Thank you for these wonderful questions. I, I do enjoy these moments, even though they do, they, they keep me, they sharpen me. <laughs> uh, 
Um, maybe we'll do it again sometime. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.